Coming up on this edition of the Reenactors Corner Podcast, we talk to a veteran with real combat experience to find out what reenacting is like for former members of the military. Plus, we announce the winner of our Kelly's Military Gift Card Giveaway. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here with Ben, live from my mansion. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm great. At the end of this episode, we are going to be announcing who the winner is from our giveaway for this month um, from our among our Patreon supporters. We're giving away a $50 gift card to Kelly's Military. And uh, at the end of this episode, we're going to find out who wins. So I'm excited for that. Very exciting. Uh, I'm also excited to talk to our guest today, uh, someone I've wanted to have on the podcast for a while. Alex, thanks for being on the podcast. Ah, You're welcome. My pleasure to be here. Over the years on social media, I've been involved in a tremendous amount of discussion and debates about um, prior military service, real world, real life military service, and how that plays into reenacting. There are a lot of people out there who are of Maybe there are probably a lot of people out there who don't realize that a lot of reenactors have prior real-world military experience and are veterans. Um, Some people who served in the military, I think, um, think that that makes them better reenactors. I don't know if it does or not, but uh, Alex, you were in the military, and so you're going to kind of be our expert on this topic for today. Um, And you can tell us, because you have military experience and also reenactment experience, um, how that how that worked out for you. Of course, this is going to be Alex's kind of personal take on it based on his experience. Ben and I never served in the military, so we don't really have uh, experience from which to draw opinions on this. So we are going to defer to Alex. But of course, uh, Alex is just one guy. And I understand that um, other people who our veterans and who are also reenactors may have different experiences, different opinions, and that's okay. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to discussing this with you guys, and I hope all of the listeners enjoy this as well. I think it'll be fun. So having said all that, Alex, why don't you give us a little introduction to yourself and you could tell us about um, your reenactment experience and also your military experience. Yeah, of course. Okay, I'm uh, just over 35 years old, so I served during the Iraq period. I was in the United States Marine Corps from 2006 to 2010. I was an infantryman and served with 1st Battalion, 3rd Marine Regiment, 3rd Marine Division as a rifleman in Bravo Company. So I, I experienced what the real military is like. And as I got interested in World War II, I thought about reenacting and I thought maybe reenacting I could draw on some of my experiences and help give it an authentic impression based off some of my experiences if I adapted them to some of the German experiences that I'd read about over the years. How long have you been doing World War II reenacting? Uh, I started reenacting World War II in 2010, right after I got out of the Marine Corps. I kind of felt an empty, an empty void of not having gear to be accountable for or going going on different patrols. So I thought, well, hey, why don't I mix my love of history with reenacting, which will kind of get my fix of having gear to take care of and weapons to handle. Do you think that a lot of guys who are prior military uh, veterans who wind up getting into reenacting might maybe feel the same way? When I was in the Marine Corps, and of course, um, I served two combat deployments, the first of which was in Haditha, Iraq, and the second was in Fallujah, outside of Fallujah, Karma, Iraq. It's difficult sometimes to kind of separate when you get in the moment when you're reenacting. Some of those adrenaline rushes kind of kind of come back, but I think a lot of former military members kind of are drawn to reenacting 
like I am for some of those same reasons. Well, I mean, if I may, it, there's a sort of sense of structure in the military. There's a chain of command. There's, like you say, being accountable for things. And you sort of see that in reenactment units where, you know, there's gear to be accountable for. Um, there's, you know, there's opportunity for promotion. And it's not the same as like a military promotion, but it's still something you get to wear on your uniform, depending on what sort of portrayal you're doing. And so, right, right. Yeah. And there's, and there's still that camaraderie, um, at events you, you develop that bond kind of outside civilian, civilian attire. You're all, you're all wearing that military uniform. Sure. Although you're depicting, you're depicting battles of the past, you still come together to portray those historical events and, it, it gives you a different a different feeling than if you're just watching a war movie. You're actually kind of going through the motions. You're sewing together. You're doing weapons maintenance together. It's, it's the same things that modern-day military members are doing as well. Sure. And also, I mean, this is something that a Roman legionary uh, in AD 50 was probably doing, you know? Um, it's a sort of right. human collective consciousness uh, tapping into that. Right. Exactly. So, Alex, you and I have talked a little bit before about, uh, you know, whether or not military experience is like a necessary prerequisite for being a reenactor or whether or not it uh, it helps to be a better reenactor or to what extent it may even uh, create challenges for reenacting. So uh, let's get into that a little bit. Um, We can talk about how it, it benefits a reenactor to have that experience and how it might create challenges. Right. Yeah. There are definitely some advantages and disadvantages to, uh, to being a former military member in the modern era in the United States. Um, I would say one thing that kind of stands out to me almost daily at a reenactment is just the modern, modern weapon weapons carries. Um, you tend to see a lot of tactical carries, the modern ready or alert carry versus some of the more casual, um, hunting, hunting carries or Jaeger carries, or even kind of just like the elbow carry. Um, so I think sometimes veterans have a difficult time breaking the habit of a modern day rifle carry. I'm, I'm sure you guys have probably seen this as well, or just, an extended well, right I mean, hand grab on the rifle. It speaks to, I mean, you went through basic training. Every veteran has been through basic training. Um, and the point of that was to drill that into you, no? Um, or one of the points right. of that. And so, yeah, I, I get that it, it can be hard to unlearn when it basically has become second nature, no? Right. And, and the thing is, also, you learn these things to become muscle memory and when you get in a situation where it's tense and you don't have time to think, these are the things that you just naturally go to. So as soon as you kind of get nervous, oh, shoot, I better get my weapon up in the alert carry that I'm used to, that I really can't even stop myself from doing. But as you kind of step back and if you're a reenactor that wants to try to understand how the Germans did things differently – you can kind of adjust your posture, even though you might have to give it a second thought. I don't know if that's something that only military veterans struggle with or even modern-day reenactors who haven't served in the military still kind of have that tendency to hold a weapon in a modern carry. I was going to mention that. I've absolutely seen people that I know, like me, didn't serve in the military using modern carries, and I think it just kind of... You see it. Um, you see it on the news. You see it in documentaries. You see it in video games. You see it in movies. That that way of carrying the rifle. And um, I think you all. None of us went through Wehrmacht's basic training. None of us were trained to carry the weapon uh, the way that they carried it to the extent that they were trained. And so, like you say, in those moments where it's tense and you don't have time to think, uh, I think people, whether they're a veteran or not, might just revert to some, how they would carry a rifle in, you know, in any other situation. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
Right. And something you spoke of, Alex, yeah. is like if there is a situation where there is tension, you might sort of go to that out-of-muscle memory. No? Right. Right. Exactly. Just kind of unconsciously, oh, shoot, I, I need to control my weapon in a positive manner, like you already have weapon skills and weapons handling skills and whatnot. So you instinctively just go to that safe position that you've had drilled into your head. I mean, that said, though, hopefully at most reenactments, people are able to sort of make the distinction that this is a simulation, you know? Um, right. And that, that's right. probably, exactly. I, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I'm a, I imagine that's helpful for you. Yes. Yep. And that actually, that's that's a good point, Ben, because that that brings me to another point where I can actually sometimes see a major disadvantage in veterans is that um, when you do get heated, I I have seen, especially at tacticals, where veterans sometimes get so heated and they say, if this was real, you would be you would be dead. There is no way you'd be doing this. You would not be walking across the field. And I just cringe and I'm like, okay, we're, we're all out here reenacting to the best of our abilities to simulate combat, which in my opinion is virtually impossible. There's, there's aspects that you can kind of simulate. And honestly, the most accurate simulation is sitting around and maybe taking a nap or reading something or telling jokes or singing. Um, sure. And I know that's a lot, that's a lot of, um, what some reenacting units do. And I think those are some of the most accurate events is when you're kind of doing some of those lulls in combat because firing blanks at somebody and them not taking their hit isn't, isn't necessarily a great portrayal of combat though. It does simulate and give an example of what combat is like, but and then again, you have veterans sometimes that just get so irate when somebody doesn't take a hit because that's so, so unrealistic. You would be dead. I don't know if you guys have experienced that before or not. I have. I have definitely seen that. And I mean, I don't know. This is probably going to be a somewhat controversial opinion, but I think, I think some people who have prior military service um, just – it, it's hard for them to to let go of either their service or things they saw over there or something, and so they get heated. And I I understand it, but it it it's kind of unpleasant when the thing is a simulation. I mean, feel free to push back on that, Alex, if you disagree. Right? No, no, I I agree, and I would I would be. I would be wrong if I said I have never gotten to the point where I got frustrated as well. But I think, especially as I grow as a reenactor and have become more and more of an accomplished reenactor, I like to kind of sit back and think about things and um, realize that really what we are doing is is more or less really authentic. Of course, there's going to be kind of disagreements and maybe somebody should have taken a hit, but if they don't, they don't. If they do, they do. Awesome. And kind of going along with this, I think in a situation where say someone in your unit or another unit does get fired up over a situation like this, oftentimes the best individual to kind of help ease the tension is another fellow veteran, whether they served in the same branch or at the same time, say Vietnam or Iraq or Afghanistan, oftentimes when a veteran is heated up about something, usually another veteran is the best person to kind of help de-escalate that situation. Yeah, I've also seen that where, you know, if one one veteran is fired up and then another veteran might come in and just take them aside, you know? Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously uh, getting upset uh, at a reenactment at a tactical is not unique to military veterans, right? Uh, you know, I've seen... I've felt the frustration where you know that you've been shooting right at somebody and they're just ignoring you or they don't know that you're there or whatever it is. Um, well, one thing I will say is I feel like in the military, granted I have not served, but I feel like in the military, if somebody is, you know, acting out of line, you can just absolutely scream at them versus in the civilian world, you might not be able to do that. Um, Alex, your take? Yeah, no, no, I agree. I I would say that in the military, there's kind of a mutual understanding where 
excuse me, if if you're kind of doing something incorrectly, it's a very firm correction, um, kind of straight to the point and harsh. And that's kind of like in mutual agreement. All right, yeah, very well. I was wrong there, and thank you for correcting me. But in the civilian world, you do you do kind of have to approach things a little more uh, tactfully. That's that's just something that I think, like you said, Chris, not not just veterans uh, struggle with, but also regular reenactors that don't have military service. Yeah, I, I think there can be a little bit of an extra edge when it's um, someone who's especially like a combat veteran, um, because not only are you looking at someone who's doing something wrong, but you may be acutely aware that this person lacks an understanding that you have, and that if they did have that understanding, they wouldn't be acting that way. And certainly that's uh, a source of, that can be a source of frustration, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it might come from trauma if you have served and, you know, you've been in dangerous situations and you see somebody doing something that in a real situation would result in, you know, their death or their serious injury. But if your sort of methodology of communicating with them is, you know, yelling that they might not get the point, even though it might come from a place of good intentions deep down. Right, exactly. It's just, it's just all, it's all a difference in circumstances and what you have experienced in your life. So it's, it's kind of something you have to communicate, um, with others and not just kind of expect people to know what they should be doing or what they shouldn't be doing if they're just a college student. Mm, sure. What, what's an example of a way that uh, prior military service can help somebody, uh, can give someone an advantage when it comes to historical reenacting? Um, I think a major advantage to someone who has served in the modern military is that they have a strong understanding of what it takes to create a persona. Um, some of the, some of the things that just happen in your everyday life that kind of are important to you when you're serving, like myself in the Marine Corps, there were, there were different songs that were popular. I remember, um, the TI versus TIP, um, CD came out, I think it was on my first deployment. And that was, something that we all listen to, whether we even really like that kind of music or not. So with that being said, I think military veterans sometimes, if they really want to develop a persona, have an understanding of the types of things that maybe they should research or look into. What did, what did the German soldiers of that day do for fun? What did they listen to? What games did they play? What did they eat? Those those sort of things. Yeah, I mean, a, a military deployment, in a sense, is a military deployment, right? If you're uh, sent to a different country as part of the armed forces, um, that's certainly an experience that has commonalities with, uh, you know, what most World War II reenactors are trying to represent. Right, right, exactly. And I always, I'm, I'm sure you two are familiar with A Stranger to Myself by uh, Billy Peter Risa. Yeah. Reading through his accounts, it just, he discusses how just the days are long and they're hungry and they kind of see beauty in the simple things like a sunset and whatnot. And it makes me realize that though the wars are different and even, even the climate may be different, it might be extremely hot or extremely cold. It's, I think, troops from all eras, even back to Roman times, probably found joy in watching a peaceful sunset at some point, whether they'll ever admit it or not, or looking up at the stars or the moon. And I know there were times on my first deployment that I was just thinking to myself, gosh, I can't believe I'm here. I feel like I'm in a different a different world it's literally everything different the smell the temperature the just the way that he hits you um and i would look up at the moon every once in a while if i was coming off of post or getting back from patrol and i would look up at it and it would kind of almost bring me home because i knew that if it was nighttime there and it happened to be 
nighttime back home for a few hours, the possibility of somebody back home looking up at the moon at the same time as, as I am kind of, kind of made feel, made it feel home was just a little bit closer, if that makes sense. That's really cool. Yeah, that's, that's really insightful. You know, I, we've kind of touched a little bit upon commonality between modern military experience and World War II experience, commonality between modern military experience and just military experience through history. Um, but I think, you know, I, I have kind of found myself sometimes a little bit at odds, uh, sometimes kind of online with some veterans who I feel like, and maybe this is me misinterpreting what they're saying, but sometimes I feel like people are trying to make the case that military experience is, is uh, universal throughout space and time and that, uh, you know, the experience of a someone in the modern military is basically the same as the experience of someone in the American Civil War or a German soldier in World War II or whatever. And I think, I don't really think that's true. Like, I, I don't have a modern military background, but I just, I look at, um, for example, uh, accounts of German soldiers in World War II, and they're talking about different experiences, different attitudes, different, you know, very sort of profound differences um, between uh, units from different parts of Germany, never mind the differences between them and their opponents. And that's all at the same time, you know, add in a time variable to that. And I just think there are so many variables. So, so I guess, Alex, I put the question to you, you know, to what extent do you, you know, to what extent do you think that your military experience kind of transfers over to what uh, a German World War II soldier might have experienced? And, and in what ways uh, do you think it might have been different? Right. Yeah, no, that's that's a valid point. And I, I agree with you there, too. Um, I, I do not believe that it's just universal from one conflict to another. Some aspects have stayed the same for hundreds of years. And I, I think that's more or less the personal effects that war has on the human body and on your mind. Those, those, those hold true, and you can see that reading memoirs where you see German, German soldiers, like I said, talking about the simple pleasures, or we were singing songs, or we just wanted to take a nap or write a letter home. Those, those all tend to be commonalities between, between conflicts. But I think as far as the war in Iraq and how it was fought, it was virtually completely different than how the war in the West or on the Eastern Front was fought. Granted, you're fighting fighting partisans and whatnot, but the whole operation was completely different. The mindset was, was different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in modern warfare, there's probably, a, there's a, correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, but there's a, there's, there's more of a concern over uh, the hearts and minds, the civilians, right? And maybe that was not the case in World War Two, in, in 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 like on the Eastern Front, right? Right, right. Yeah, exactly. I would, I would like to say, um, that we've evolved as as humans how we fight wars. Although some some events that are occurring might might make you think differently yeah, sadly so but 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 yes i think for us our our goal was to go over to say iraq and just kind of help facilitate peace and everybody coming together for freedom um and i don't necessarily know if that was the objective of militaries in the past Sure. So what we were what we were doing was we would we would hand out water, we would hand out candy to the kids, which at the same time, all politics aside, there were German soldiers handing out water and I'm sure little candies to kids too. And sure. and that just kind of begs the question where it's like we're serving our nation for our nation in what we think we should be doing for our nation, whether politically what we're doing is right or wrong. We are still serving our nation and on a human level, most, most soldiers or Marines or airmen or soldaten, they, they want to 
live to see the next day and they want to have relationships with even the locals and and show them that hey we're not here to just completely destroy your life that's interesting yeah that is an interesting point i mean that is i i you definitely read memoirs of you know German soldiers in World War II forging relationships with people in the East. It wasn't all terrible. It wasn't all, you know, it, it wasn't all war crimes, basically. Um, yeah. Right. And, and, I think, and I think politics sometimes overshadow the humility that there is in war. Because the individual foot soldier, Marine on the ground isn't isn't necessarily just fighting to destroy everything that's that's not what we were there to do and we didn't want to do that we wanted to facilitate peace um but whatever the political agenda is is way over our pay grade sure as it was for german soldiers um during World War Two, and I think something that people forget is yes, an army draws, and an, an, an army consists of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people. Are there going to be some sadists in those ranks? Odds are yes, but also most people are, I think, pretty good-hearted. Um, and sometimes circumstances are bad, but uh, most people, I think, are good-hearted. Agreed. Agreed. And I think that's true f- throughout the ages. Let's get back to some of the pros and cons that we talked about before, Alex. Um, knowing the effects uh, of weapons, having experience with you know what weapons do, but I think it it kind of goes a little further than that into just um, knowing about weapons, correct weapons handling, uh, weapon safety. I think that can can kind of be a, almost a pro and a con in some ways, where um, modern attitudes about correct handling might be different from. Uh, you know, period restrict uh, regulations about how to handle weapons, right? I think for the most part, weapons handling and weapon safety has probably remained about the same since weapons were developed. You you never point a weapon at anything you don't intend to shoot. You uh, more or less keep your finger off the trigger until you're ready to fire. I kn- I know that wasn't as common of a practice for German soldiers back then, but in the Marine Corps, it was keep your finger straight off the trigger until you're ready to fire. So. You, it's hard to kind of let something like that go because every time you fire and you kind of disengage, your finger just comes straight up and it looks like you're pointing at something along your trigger guard. Um, but I think it definitely is a plus when it comes to um, being a veteran and you already have um, some knowledge when it comes to firearms and you can kind of help pass that knowledge on to fellow reenactors who may or may not have had very much experience with weapons during their lifetime. Yeah, I know I've seen some online debates rage where, you know, a bunch of people find a bunch of photos of, you know, soldiers from World War II who, like, aren't practicing good trigger discipline, which is, I think, a modern concept, but also I think it's it's a, it's a sort of safety and common courtesy thing in reenacting, so I'm... Right. I'm okay right. with that, like because you got to figure modern military all volunteer versus a conscript force in World War II. Um, so, right. so yeah, I'm right. I'm okay right. with and, this point. And I th- yeah, and I think I think that weapons handling, like I said, for the most part, has pretty much remained the same since the invention of firearms. But I think the evolution of proper firearm safety is something that evolves. So not only is your weapon unsafe, your finger is also still straightened off the trigger. Where, say, Wehrmacht soldiers, their weapon was unsafe, so their finger might have got a little close to the trigger and didn't really maintain that modern-day discipline. But were they still handling their weapon safely? Yes. It's just not by the modern standards. Uh, even just the most basic awareness of how unsafe a weapon can be is something that might be lacking for a person who literally has never handled a gun, which is uh, some percentage of people who get involved in, in historical reenacting. Yeah, I mean, I remember at my first right. event ever to demonstrate the power of a blank, um, basically somebody who I think was in the service put a tin can, empty tin can, on the muzzle of a Car 98 and then fired a blank 
and the thing went flying. It must have flew 30 feet in the air. Um, and right. that was basically a sort of, this is what can happen if you, if you, if you are not careful. Um, yes, it's a blank, but it can still hurt somebody. Right. So. Right. And I, yeah, I think, I think it's important for veterans to, to help some reenactors who, who might not have the experience with weapons because you can't get mad at people who may or may not have had the same experience with weapons as you have. So before you get mad at somebody, you can't get mad at them if you if you haven't talked them correctly. That That's part of why I think that uh, reenactment units are such an important part of reenactment because a reenactment group can make sure that the members of the group have at least minimum basic training and skills with regard to weapon safety. Well, exactly. And I think it's that's very similar to say the modern military you and your reenacting unit police your own just as in your own platoon or your own squad or own fire team or yourself you you police you help police others for lack of a better term but more or less just kind of keep everybody responsible well this is going to be maybe this is a controversial opinion but i think that a good unit probably is a healthy mix of people who have been in the service and people who have not. Like, not even 50-50, but just like a healthy mix of people who have, you know, requisite experience with weapons um, and then and then not. Um, because, I mean, I think some groups definitely are more veterans-heavy and, and, and some are not. And some groups might actively only really want to pick up veterans, you know? Um, which I've seen right. in my time in the hobby, and I think sort of a a good a good group might have some people who have been in the military and some who have not, and uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, I I definitely agree with you, Ben. I I think a good I think a good mix is healthy for the overall reenacting community and uh, individual units as well. Yeah, because I th- I feel like a group which is exclusively veterans, it might be almost sort of gatekeepy, or uh, it's basically like a like a like a veterans association in some ways. Right, right, and and I think sometimes too, if you have too many veterans, you might kind of revert back to some of those tendencies. Um, say to sure. stay clean to stay clean shaven all the time, for example, where even even in combat in iraq it was still you shave every few days at least where it's like germans on the eastern front they would shave but maybe it would be a week or two or something like that so that's that's something that i think maybe a heavy veteran unit would just be keep a hundred percent clean shaven all the time sure and that's not necessarily historically accurate for portraying the wehrmacht soldier of world war ii sure i agree with that yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I think there are other uh, similar points about, um, for example, uh, the reality of the conscript army that Germany fielded or that the Soviet Union fielded or even that America fielded during World War II versus an all-volunteer military. Um, like you mentioned, the clean-shaven thing. I mean, I understand, from what I understand, the standards for example uh you know how your uniform is supposed to look or how what constitutes serviceable or unserviceable i think now is probably very different from how it was in world war ii right yeah um to speak on that i remember on my second deployment i had a a rip in my trousers and it came back from a patrol i i probably had those trousers on for for a week or so walking around everybody, you know, I get back to the fob and first sergeant would see me kind of, kind of try to hide that rip. Um, but those, those were a hundred percent unserviceable. And I remember my platoon sergeant saw him and he said, next time you get a chance, you get a new pair of trousers. You're not going to be walking around with those torn up trousers and modern, modern military in the Marine Corps, you, you mend your stuff, but you don't mend your stuff like German soldiers mended their stuff. I, I think, I think back to World War II, and if if they had a rip in their trousers, they'd probably sew it within the first few days that maybe they had a, had an actual chance to kind of sit down and do that. Whereas us, we were getting on Skype or getting on Facebook, and we just kind of pushed 
something like that to the side. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like then in the modern age, there's more distractions. But also, too, I feel like there was more of a culture of recycling back in the 1940s. I mean, I'm sure, right. you know, the Germans, they uh, they would reissue foreign uniforms and equipment uh, if, if possible. Um, and I've seen... Actually, I mean, Chris Heswood in his collection of this tunic where, like, the pockets are blown out and it's got all these insane repairs on it. And I think in a modern context, in a modern army, that thing would be unserviceable. But back right. then, it would, be, it would be trash. Yeah, it was the yeah. thing to do. You would, I, I mean, even if this thing wasn't getting issued out to a guy in combat, it would go to some guy in a training unit. And so, right. yeah. So, what's trash now in modern day standards for being serviceable is actually a beautiful uniform back in world war two or to even reenact or collecting standards where it's like, wow, that's a beautiful darn job on that. That's, that's a beautiful period repair. It's, yeah. That's, that's what they did. They, they repaired as much as they could as often as they could too, to keep it from getting worse and worse because a, a tear only gets larger as you keep wearing that item. Yeah. Yeah. That makes you, sense. Before you fix it. So you kind of have to service your gear whenever opportunity arises to keep it from getting worse and worse. Sure. Being unserviceable. And, and I think too, um, with uniforms and whatnot in the modern military, if, if your Chevron isn't at the precise angle or it's not completely straight it's redo it do it again or take it back to the tailor and have them fix it and i see when i do for example my das reich impression with my das reich unit um collar tabs for for example you you see some collar tabs that are that are of course factory applied and they look great you see some that are factory applied and they're a little a little off they're not, they're not too regulation as, as you would say, especially nowadays, but then yeah. you see some insignia that's hand sewn by the actual wearer and that collar tab is almost coming completely off the collar in, in parts. Yeah, I mean, Chris discovered uh, a, a photograph of some original photographs of some Litson which were reapplied and they looked absolutely horrific. And I mean, granted, for my own Litson, I prefer them to be done right in the but the nice factory way. Um, but that said, I mean, you definitely saw a range of variation. And also, as you may have alluded to, some of these uniforms were being made by slave laborers who were working under duress and did not actually care about how like perfect the sleeve eagle was or whatever, you know. So right or a misstitch yeah, here and there. Or, yeah. Right. Exactly. I think in a modern all-volunteer military, it stands to reason that your your pride and your appearance might take on a different dimension than if you got basically forcibly conscripted, and it's like, well, this is what they gave me, and that's what I'm wearing. You yeah. know? And of course, I know there were a lot of people, yeah. a lot of soldiers in wartime Germany who took tremendous pride and were very fastidious about their appearance, but that wasn't absolutely everybody. mm Mm, mm. Right. And I, I will say, um, when I, when I look at the modern military and I look at the modern Bundeswehr versus the Wehrmacht, or I look back at my service, um, I do see a great sense of pride in the German soldiers appearance and i know that there's always been a large amount of theater in the german military with the pickle hob helmets there's always looking looking very sharp and lean and mean and we can see that in the uniforms um and i think even with like the modern day marine corps um when you're in garrison or even out in the field you still to your best to the best of your ability maintain that that look of discipline because ultimately you are disciplined regardless of where you are and what you're doing so if you if you can take care of yourself and make sure your uniform is squared away then 
then you would do it. And I think Wehrmacht soldiers kind of had that same mentality as, as say modern Marines today do. You wear your uniform with pride and honor for your country. You mentioned the, the discipline issue, and I think that is a salient point because although as reenactors, we are, of course, not in the uh, World War II German military, we are, uh, we're just enthusiasts, right? Uh, we are nevertheless portraying a military organization. And so um, I think there are some aspects of uh, somebody's demeanor, somebody's bearing um, that could they could conceivably uh, learn this, have this instilled in them through military service, and then could carry it over to reenacting in a way that I think would be realistic, would add realism. Right. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you say bearing. Um, Because in formations, I, I sometimes think to myself where it's like, yeah, we are out here as much fun as we're having. We are still depicting a combat force from World War II, and we want to give it the appropriate representation. So when you're standing in formation, you should you should stand in formation the way they stood in formation, with your fingers extended at when your middle finger down your trousers seam and have your chest forward and stand stand with some pride and and show that this is how the German soldier carried himself. This was this was his demeanor. This was this was his bearing. It was all fun and games when he had his free time and he was on furlough or leave. But then when you're in formation, all the all the jokes are kind of aside and and you are a formidable fighting force with discipline and and honor and pride. Yeah, I mean there is something to make like just getting making it second nature that you know your tunic buttons are all buttoned up you know that your collar is hooked you know that your your belt buckle is in the front um and i mean i remember when i started the hobby it that took a little bit of learning um and i think something which there were some photos of me where like maybe my belt my belt my belt buckle was wildly off center and if you look at original photographs um most of the time, their belt buckle is right on center because I think those guys, they had it in their mind that that is just where it always is supposed to be and they were always adjusting it. Um, right, right. You know? And so it's very hard to find a photograph where maybe some guy's belt is like wildly off center, um, especially if it's like a pose thing. Right. And even even along those lines, if you are not actively in kinetic combat, and you aren't using, say, your tunic pockets, your pocket flaps should be buttoned. And and I see that a lot in wartime photos as well. And that's a similarity that's shared with us in the modern Marine Corps. If you aren't actively using your pockets for something, like your cargo pockets in modern day trousers, you you keep those pocket flaps closed. And and that's the same thing you see with German soldiers. So it when it's when it's like a posed photo, they have the pocket flaps buttoned. It serves a function too. I mean if you have something in your trousers, you don't want to lose it, you keep it closed, you know? So right. yeah. I'll just throw out there one of my kind of pet peeves and of course in our in our reenactment group, um, we have military veterans. I have a lot of friends in reenacting who are military veterans. Um, and I have gotten a lot of in, valuable insight and knowledge that they have shared with me. Uh, one of the things that kind of irks me a little bit is a tendency to use like modern military jargon in a World War II setting. It, uh, I find it to be like, I find it to detract. Oh gosh, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with you, Chris. Um, especially being a, being a Marine, it's hard for me sometimes, um, not to say cover when I mean to say Feldmutze. (laughs) So no, I, I definitely understand. And I cringe right along with you, even if I find myself unconsciously saying something now, like cover. (laughs) This also might be a bit of a controversial opinion. And like Chris, I also have, you know, some dear friends in our group who in the hobby who are in the service, but I feel like, unfortunately, I've encountered a few people in my time reenacting who have what I call Starship Troopers Syndrome, 
in which, you know, their experience in the military may have been traumatic or unpleasant or something. And that's, you know, that's, that's very unfortunate. But they then, in like a reenactment setting, basically, if somebody hasn't suffered in kind, had a similar experience, they basically kind of act like they can't add anything to the, the discussion. That's something you have experienced, Alex? you have anything to say on? Yeah. Um, I think for me, um, well, hell, a lot of the, a lot of the things I experienced, I wouldn't want anybody to experience. And, and that's just me. So I, I don't, I don't ever think somebody's inexperience in a particular situation is necessarily a bad thing. And I've never really judged them differently because of that. I think that's um, something that isn't even, um, uh specific to veterans. I think that any kind of reenactor who is just, um, I see a lot of, look, there are a lot of big personalities in reenacting among them, some big egos, and there can be different levels of, uh, hubris or whatever you want to call it. I'm not saying I'm immune to this where you, you think that uh, other people, for whatever reason, because they haven't read the same books that you read, they didn't go to the same events that you went to, they haven't done the same impressions, or they don't know the same people, that they just don't know anything about anything. And uh, so you can just disregard their perspective, that they should be listening to you and you don't have anything to learn from them. Yeah, I think Chris sort of hit the nail on the head that it, it's, 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 it's more of a personality type thing. Because honestly, most people I know who have been in combat or have been through those unpleasant experiences, they're extremely humble about it. Um, so, yeah. Right. And I think, I think sometimes, too, um, with veterans, they, they either come out to the field with, oh, I'm just going to do this and... I don't really, really care because I don't want to be miserable. So I'm, I'm not going to sit here and clean my weapon. Um, I don't know if you guys have, have witnessed that or anything similar to that, where it's military veterans just don't want to do some of the immersive stuff because they don't want to get uncomfortable again. Yeah. I mean, in a way I understand that too, because I mean, if you already did this and you got paid for it, you know, then sometimes willingly subjecting yourself to you know sleeping in a muddy hole with like nothing but a great coat that's why would you want to do that if you already did it and got paid for it and it was um, and you found that unpleasant then right it's, it is interesting the differences in how people respond to this stuff you know where um I have known people who are military veterans who had absolutely no qualms about sleeping in the most uh, uncomfortable situations imaginable, uh, saying, hey, look, you know, I did this stuff for real. I can do this. This is fine. And then there are other people who take the opposite approach, which is I did this for real and I'm going to be damned if I sleep on the ground without a mattress, you know. Right, right. And and I think it's one thing to um, maybe maybe some of the veterans, their bodies just can't take it anymore because let's face it war war can really wreak havoc on your body they say in the marine corps every year that you serve your body actually ages at least four years so if you have some reenactor out with you he is a veteran and you know he might be a good hard charger during the day but in the evening it it might just be kind of rough for him i know a lot of guys have sleep apnea a lot of guys have trouble sleeping as it is and yeah. get sick more often or have lung issues um and they might not necessarily want to say that because you know it, it's kind of embarrassing but for them they might come off as oh well i'm not going to sleep out here again but maybe deep down they really shouldn't be sleeping in those conditions because their bodies just can't handle it like they used to because they've already gone through hell and back a guy in our group, a friend of mine, um, he was telling me that he was in the Marines and he was over in Afghanistan, I believe it was. And he was telling me that he is actually an inch shorter um, after his time in the service than he was going in just because of, you know, carrying the heavy packs and stuff and everything that his body was subjected to during that time of his life. Right. So, yeah, it takes a toll. I, I understand that. That's really good insight and perspective, Alex. I think it's important to keep that in mind basically for for everybody, whether they're a military veteran or not, that uh, 
not everybody's life is the same outside of reenactment. Some people work in offices, some people are construction workers, you know, some people have incredibly physical jobs. And I mean, for some people, um, if they show up to work really tired on Monday, they can just kind of phone it in and, and muddle through their their boring day at the call center or whatever, where another guy in a different type of work in a high pressure job, him being tired and inattentive could cost somebody their life, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, I think. Right, right. I think it's easy sometimes. And this, this, of course, transcends military versus civilian, but it's like all of human experience where um, a lot of times we we don't know what struggles other people are facing. We don't know what other people have gone through or are going through. Right. Yeah, I I definitely agree with you. It's not necessarily always a veteran veteran or non-veteran issue. There are there are some people who just probably probably should get a good night's rest. Mm. Mm. This makes sense. Right, like you know, something there is I think a lot of focus on military service um in reenacting as far as um it's sort of seen as a credential if someone can say, well, I have experienced combat for real. Uh, I was in the real military. There is a level of experience, a level of knowledge that comes with that that certainly should be respected. But at the same time, um, everybody, almost everybody has some kind of experience maybe that's unique to them that can apply to reenacting, whether it's through their job or whatever it is. I mean, uh, the military doesn't have an exclusive lock on um, hard work, uh, deprivation, being away from home and, and stuff like that. To jump off of that. Right, right. To jump off that, off of that a little bit, Chris, um, the other thing I've noticed is most people I've known who've been in the military who've seen combat are very, very humble about it. But there's a certain subset of person who's been in the military who hasn't seen combat who might not even be that good uh, in the military, but the military has given them structure and it's given them a sort of sense of meaning and that's all well and good and understandable, but they want everybody to know about it in reenacting. And I feel like that's that can be kind of a con. Well, this this can be kind of a can of worms. But, but yeah. Alex, do you think you know that it's even worthwhile to to make a distinction when we're talking about military experience and reenacting between people who have done combat deployments and people that maybe did not? People who served in the the peacetime army, for example. Oh, I think combat experiences are are going to harden you and they're also if you look at them from a different perspective they they kind of open you up to being being a better person um not not as harsh because you've seen how harsh and cruel the world is so so why do you want to describe that to everybody and brag about it i've i've never really never really understood that that's really touching. I really like that. There's every everyone in the military, this is kind of my perspective. Everybody in the military has their job. And of course, being an infantryman, it's like, hey, we're the grunts, you're the pogue. And if we didn't have the support that we had, we wouldn't have the ammunition, the chow, the water. Um, if we didn't have CBs, we wouldn't have had the beautiful Hesco palaces to live in, in the middle of the desert. So at, at the same time where it's like, yeah, you're just a pogue, the pogues are there to help the infantrymen and the infantrymen ultimately help the personnel other than grunts as well. And it's, it's all one big operating force and you need to have somebody in non-combat positions as much as you need to have people in combat roles that's really good insight so so for me of course yeah there's some times where i'm like oh all right well your uniform was nice and clean the whole time and then once we were rotating out of iraq all of us grunts came into the chow hall say for example and our faces just look different just our whole demeanor was different our uniforms were 
so dirty you couldn't even get them clean before we got new camis to go back home and you can just kind of see everybody looking at you differently and you're just kind of like what the hell like why are you guys staring at us like we're just regular guys too but i think like you said the the guys that have been through some stuff like that um tend to not really brag about it because you you are doing your job and maybe you got a little dirtier. Maybe life was a little harder, but it was still difficult sometimes for some of those other guys that might have had to run fuel up to your position because they're not immune to getting hit by an IED or taking pop shots from somebody either. So just because you lived it day in and day out in the middle of the trench in the desert or some some place in the middle of Iraq doesn't doesn't mean that you're less of a Marine for being a pogue than if you were a grunt. Sure. It must really be interesting to have the experience of um, having been issued your uniform and gear and just to have a real life, you know, sort of that as a touchstone to go back to versus in reenacting where we have to make all of these decisions and choose uh, exactly what model of uniform or exactly what kind of insignia, whereas um, to kind of just be able to remember, well, I, I didn't get to make those kind of choices. Yeah, no, that's, that's actually kind of funny that you mentioned that because um, when I, when I order stuff sometimes or, um, or whatnot, I will sometimes ask to just be sent a camouflage cap in whatever pattern. I actually did that with SM Wholesale not that long ago. I said, hey, I, I need a camo cap. I need a size 57. And I'm portraying this point in the war. It was mid-war. And I said, I need a camo cap. Can you essentially issue, issue me a camo cap? And they sent me a plain tree camo cap. It is totally different when you can pick everything you're going to wear. Or, oh, I want an early war Adler on this on this foul blusa, and then I want mid war shoulder boards, and then I okay, I'll do an early war bottle green sleeve sleeve rank chevron where you can kind of choose that. Like you said, in in the actual Wehrmacht, you were issued what you were issued. Chris and I have talked about this before, and you see a few um, enlisted uniforms in World War II. Um, you know, maybe it's like a Model 42 or 43 tunic that, like, the soldier has chosen to put a bottle green collar on. But those are very, you know, few and far between, especially for, you know, your fighter rank. Um, you usually, if you see that, it's on, it's on an NCO or higher. Um, and I... Yeah, I'm sure those guys thought that the bottle green collar looked snappier, but it's like, this is an issued thing I have to give back. Do I really want to spend my pay to change the collar out on this, you know? Or, I mean, those collars could have been on there for some other purpose. Maybe there was, like, some regiment that was doing some sort of a, you know, parade or something, and maybe they chose to all do that, like the tailor did it, but uh, there's, like, things we don't know, but... uh, yeah, it's like if you don't own it, yeah, you can acknowledge somebody, something looks snappy, but do you necessarily want to pay to get that done? Right, right. Yeah, and unless you're unless you're an experienced seasoned NCO, you're you're probably not going to take the time and effort to go out and have a bottle green collar added to your M42 or M43 Feldblusa to to kind of pay homage to those early war years. Sure. Sure. But but some guys did uh, quite a quite a few NCOs. You see that kind of kind of across the board where they even added pocket pleats to their say breast pockets, but left the hip pockets um, just standard M forty three pockets. Yeah, I've seen that. That's a neat look. Sure. I mean, the other thing too, which comes to mind, is in the modern military, you have a wear out date for a uniform, right? Like if some form of camouflage is being replaced by another one, there's a certain date where you have to stop wearing it by, no? That's true. But when I got into the Marine Corps in 2006, um, the MARPAT pattern, the Digi pattern, uh, was still relatively relatively new. It had been out for a while. But my trousers, of course, were woodland hmm. marine pattern, but the pockets were the old woodland... 80s camo? The old woodland, yeah. That's yeah, really interesting. The old woodland camo. 
Yeah. That's really interesting. It's kind of funny how, like, you know, military, you know, the contractors that make uniforms for the military. I saw a pair of field gray um, breeches, um, but uh, there was some, like, material. There was, like, some, like, I think it was, like, the, like, the the pants the pants hose like the bottom of the, like the inside was made out of stone gray material like the pre-war trousers and it's just uh-huh. kind of funny how military contractors throughout the ages have have uh have used old material where they can you know right yeah we're going to make we're going to make pockets out of this material so hey let's let's throw it in there that'll work so from from like a collector's standpoint, and honestly, it wasn't even until I got really active in reenacting and kind of went back through some of my old uniforms, I noticed, oh, man, no way. They use old old woodland print for my pockets, and I thought it was cool. But when I was in the Marine Corps back in 2006, 2010, I didn't, I didn't even really think anything of it. I'm like, oh, well, it's just these are my trousers. But now I'm like, wow, that's awesome. These are going to be maybe collectible sometime, but... I'm never going to get rid of them. I, I think it's cool. So sometimes reenacting kind of helps you gain an appreciation for some stuff that you might have overlooked in your actual military service. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, but back to my point about uh, wear-out dates. Like, there was no wear-out date for the M34 caps, so some men were still wearing, you know, caps made before 1941, like in 1941 and 1945, you know? So, right. yeah. Just another little, another, right. another little exactly. distinction. Alex, what do you think about people doing historical reenactment of the war that you fought in? Um, that's actually something that I've just recently been been kind of thinking about. Part of me just kind of has to realize that I guess the war in Iraq is has been a few years ago now, so so that might that might kind of be a uh, be a topic for reenacting. But I I think I think if it's done correctly and everyone does their best to depict what what we went through and what we wore then i'll be i'll be happy to see people reenacting the war in iraq because it it is all it ultimately is keeping the story of history alive for others to see and better understand and that's where i just hope if it is being reenacted the modern war in iraq the research is done and and they do it with respect for what we did as individual marines po- politics aside i know i know people can say well we were in iraq for a good reason we were in iraq for a bad reason we should have been there we shouldn't have been there but if you just reenact like how we reenact the individual soldier and the individual military units i'd be happy to see somebody reenacting my particular unit in Iraq, in Hadith, Iraq, if somebody was, hey, my impression is First Battalion, Third Marines, be like, awesome. I would, I would want to see how well they put their impression together. If they had the coyote tan flak, but still had woodland pouches, because we still had green, green ammo pouches. And I don't, I don't know if a, if a guy was going to have all coyote pouches, I'd be like, well, you know, actually in 2006, 2007, we didn't use just all the standard desert coyote color. That's interesting. The little variations in time, you know, we talk about theater specific or year specific things in World War II, but I think that's true of sort of any historical portrayal of any war and also your own military experience. Yeah. I took a panther store. M42 Feldbluse, and this is in an era when boiling your uniforms was actually the fad. And I boiled this uniform into nothing, and it reduced itself into a um, uh, woolen soup. It's really different to do reenactment in France, Italy, or even England, because there are countries that suffered from the war. In Switzerland, people are quite open, and I never got any negative reaction. There was a time where I thought, oh man, we're going to really be struggling with recruits this year. But I don't know if it's because people were sitting at home twiddling their thumbs because of COVID. But our recruitment actually has astronomically risen. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. Okay, so 
As I mentioned in the previous episode and also at the start of this episode, we are giving away a $50 gift card to Kelly's Military. Their website is kellsmilitary.com. The proprietor of that website is a friend of mine, someone I've reenacted with before. They've got a lot of great items. They're a really useful vendor to have in this hobby. Um, I have a lot of kit items from them that I use. And just before we recorded this, I used a random number generator to randomly select one of our Patreon supporters to be the winner of the $50 gift card. And I am pleased to announce that the winner is Dustin Belair. So, Dustin, uh, Thank you for your support. Dustin has been a Patreon supporter of ours for almost two years, and we really appreciate it very much. And I'm I'm happy uh, to send you the information about the gift card. So I'll be emailing you about that probably before you hear this or maybe the next day uh, after this comes out. So, Dustin, congratulations. Thanks a lot. Sorry to uh, everybody that didn't win, but good news is that we will be having another giveaway sometime soon. Yeah, be sure to spend it well. Kelly's is a lot of great stuff, so check them out. So, Alex, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your insight and perspective on this, and uh, it's been really great talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you again, Alex. Great conversation. Really appreciate your insights. And, uh, you know, I'd love to have you on again sometime, because I really feel like we just scratched the surface of this. And, of course, uh, I know there's plenty of other stuff that we could we could be talking about as well. We, we really didn't even get a chance, Alex, to talk about your, uh, your unit and impressions that much, so um, maybe for another time. Perhaps a part two is in order. Sounds good, yeah. By, by all means, that's fine with me. It's been a pleasure, and thanks for having me, and I hope everybody enjoyed this, this episode. Awesome. Right. So uh, special thanks to everybody uh, who supports us via Patreon. Congratulations to our giveaway winner and to Alex, Ben, and everybody out there. I will see you in the field. See See you in in the the field. field. Cheers. We love hearing what you think about the podcast. So why not let us know by reaching out in all the usual places, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for The Reenactors Corner and you'll find us there. And maybe think about supporting us via Patreon. No matter how big or small, your monthly donations make a huge difference. You can sign up for as little as $2 a month. As ever, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and will join us here again at the Reenactors Corner. <laughs>